everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Matt Smith. Hey. John Epperson. Hello, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm going to do a quick shout out. We're going to do a Rails Remote Conf in August, so please go check it out, railsremoteconf.com. We have a special guest this week, and that's John, is it Beatty? Uh, Beatty, like Warren Beatty, although I've yep. never seen any of his movies. I haven't either. John, do you want to introduce yourself and give us a quick rundown of who you are? Sure. I'm John Beatty. I'm just kind of a Rails developer now. I work at a school and, and uh, I, as the IT director and teach some computer. So I have a lot of flexibility in, in what I can uh, put on technology. So I get the opportunity to build a custom Rails application and manage some of our student information systems. And that's where I get to uh, hobby horse a lot of the ideas that I blog about on my blog on rails.blog, which I've been doing for about three years, kind of on and off and not so much faster. It's busy personally, but I started off as an iOS and Android and BlackBerry developer when I got out of college for some companies in the DC area. And then I worked at a bunch of startups before I got into education. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Nice. Your app is slow and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. We had you come on to talk about the talk that you gave at RailsConf last year, which is Rails does support progressive web apps. It's funny because this is a topic that we do hand-to-hand combat on, on like JavaScript Jabber and stuff, but PWAs is not something that we've really... I, I mean, we might have done an episode here or there on it, but... Yeah, not not to the level of, okay, how do you do it with Rails? So do you want to just give us the 10,000-foot view on on this topic, and then we can dive in and start asking all of our questions? So I got interested in PWAs. So I was doing research for uh, what you could do on websites, on Rails websites, um, using stimulus to kind of add the interactivity. Uh, and I came across this interesting project called the Hacker News Progressive Web App, where you would build progressive web apps and a bunch of different front-end frameworks. And it was a nice way to compare each of those different front-ends with um, each other. So you could see how do you solve the same problem with different uh, languages, different templating frameworks. And so I thought this would be a great uh, experiment to see what you could do with Rails to satisfy this. Um, And, you know, Rails, Stimulus, Active Job, Action Cable, all the kind of things that are built into Rails could you mimic or could you reproduce this project in the same way? Um, so part of the research was figuring out what makes a progressive web app. That's where I sort of came up with this, the world's fastest PWA that I talk about in the app. And really all you need is a, an HTML file that gets downloaded. It points to a service worker that's just a little bit of JavaScript and a uh, manifest file that's in JSON that kind of has all the details you need for this particular, for any particular, particular PWA. So since it's, um, and then the, the browser is going to do the rest, they figure out how to start the service worker, what things to pull down, 
and then your PWA is is running in, in the background or offline, depending on what your needs are. So since it's only a couple files and it's, it's really just a kind of a convention that the browsers expect, I realized that would fit really well with inside of a Rails app. You have to do a couple things differently because it doesn't really work with the asset pipeline or Webpacker. So they have to go on their own kind of controller. Um, but because they're in that, they fit really well with using ERB for templating. If you want to, to, you can put your assets in from the from the asset pipeline to get those cached. Um, any logic you need, any images can be stored from the, um, sorry, served from the asset pipeline. And so the PWA itself, I think, fits really well within what Rails can provide, just from a very simple perspective, because it's it really truly is just a little bit of configuration. Or I'm sorry, a little bit of configuration, and it's mostly convention. And uh, then you get that all that perform all that um, functionality uh, for free. That's really interesting. So I've I've heard a lot of arguments over what the definition of a PWA is. It sounds like you got the service worker portion of things working, and then built up from there. And that, that's kind of the main thing that I hear about it, but then also seeing it as a stand-in for mobile apps. And so I'm a little bit curious before we get too deep on the implementation, what are the benefits of a PWA, you know, beyond maybe being able to replace mobile apps and things like that? I think that's the that's probably the biggest benefit. What you're getting from the, what the browser's providing is front-end processing because that surface worker is essentially another thread for your application running on the front end. So you can do work and you wouldn't block the kind of the main thread of your um, interactivity on the website. So if you need to do some little bit of processing, you can do that. Um, I think the biggest advantage is that you can cache those assets on the device and then, then you can access them without having to go over the network. So if your phone is offline, you can still pull up that information. And if you look at what a lot of mobile apps do. Some of them are very interactive and require a network connection, but then a lot of them are kind of a reference or something. You're kind of looking up something that could be stored locally. So the PWA gives you that ability to store information that you might need offline in the same way that an app stores information you need offline. And then you can pull that up whatever time, whenever you need it. And then because it's the, the PWA convention allows you to kind of um, set uh, an icon so then the phone can create a basically a placeholder a wrapper around your website and give it the skin of a of an app it's not a perfect uh, replacement obviously um, there are some things that native apps would do better but I think for a lot of if you look think about what a lot of um, iPhone or Android apps do is they're, they're a they're really a wrapper on some kind of web service so you would have to don't have to duplicate that functionality in a native interface. Um, and then they're they're in storing data locally that you could use offline. And so you get both of those benefits with very little work on your end. That makes sense. So what what kinds of things do you have your service worker doing for you then? I mean, I see people using it to like manage the cache or do Ajax calls or things like that. So for with the, the Rails application, it's really just doing the caching at this point. Um, uh, you can do have it do notifications. So that's another thing where it would replace a mobile application. I believe that currently only works on Android at the moment. Um, Apple kind of locks that that down and they, they really want you to use their native apps. I think it, if the industry keeps moving more towards this standard, I, I wouldn't I would foresee them perhaps making some concessions in that regard. Um, so I think those are the two big things, caching and notifications. 
on the rail side, since Rails, like the Rails UGS, can do all that AJAX requests, or you could set up Action Cable to handle a lot of that background processing. That actually isn't in the service worker. I, those things are handled uh, by essentially different threads in your application. So I, I think the biggest the biggest wins are just the, the caching and the notifications. So how hard was it for you to get this set up? It, it sounded like, I mean, you narrated it kind of like it was pretty easy. Were there any difficult points? Did you just kind of roll out of the box? You just default? I don't know. You installed Rails, you hooked up a couple pages, and boom, it was working? Or what kinds of hurdles did you have to go through, I guess, is really what I'm trying to get at. I think the biggest challenge is that there's not terrible, terribly, uh, there's not a lot of documentation about it. So there is a current, or there, at the point there was a gem that you could um, put in your app and it would give you, as I say, Rails engine that would give you the PWA functionality. And it was just kind of, you know, the author had figured out a lot of the tough stuff. So I was able to kind of work off of that. So I think, and I think this is where a lot of the problems with the, the discussion around PWAs comes is there isn't like a one single person who says this is how it all works it's kind of it's a spec and then the browsers have slightly different implementations or they kind of do different things or they all have their own documentation so i, th- I think the, the real challenge was just kind of um, figuring out what makes it a pwa and uh, that's why i thought it was important to have the just a really simple h static html page that pulls in a small javascript worker just to show that it doesn't really it actually doesn't really require that much and i think it also kind of gets wrapped around with the JavaScript front-end libraries, whether that's React or Angular, Vue.js. They've got all their other logic that's going on the front-end, and it, I think that muddies the water a little bit about what is the line between a truly a progressive web app and then a web application written in JavaScript um, that then has a service worker caching all the files and things like that. So I would say from a technical standpoint, it wasn't a terrible amount of work. It was more just um, doing the research of figuring out how does this all go together, where are the sticking points other people have had, and, and learning from their mistakes. And that was why I was really happy to share it at RailsConf, because I think there just isn't a terrible amount of information that people can use to, to make that decision. And there's a lot of um, kind of uncertainty about what, where those lines are of what's a progressive web app, what's a front-end web, front-end web application, things like that. Well, there's plenty of uh, anxiety about that, yeah, amongst front-end developers, let alone full-stack or back-end developers. So I find it interesting just looking at that and seeing, okay, so that's where you drew the line. Yeah, I mean, you could do, and I think the part of the promise is because there's so much discussion around the what makes it a PWA, we're not really, there hasn't been a lot of research into what can you actually do once you get past that spot. Like I, I used the gmail um and i don't have the web app i don't have the the native app installed i just use it in my uh, phone browser and they've set up a a pwa um, at least that's what it appears like because when you when it's offline it'll tell you it's offline that it can't get your mail but you know it's got a lot of the same feel of a native app and it was designed like that so i think there's a lot more work that we could do to to see where how far you could push it and that's kind of what i've been noodling around a little bit with and I think things like, uh, like I, I think you could probably do a, a really cool ebook reader as a professional web app because you've got that download offline functionality that, we, that is so great about ebooks. You don't need to be online to read them. Um, and then you've, you've got the web backend where you can kind of download any book. Um, but then it becomes a chicken and egg problem of 
where do you get the books and you got to get the licensing and things like that. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for research once um, and experimentation once we get past the uh, wh where's the web app line, where's the progressive web app line and, um, and more standard. And I think another problem is the standardization between browsers because the Chrome really pushes the envelope and then Safari is, is kind of behind and especially on mobile where these are so much more valuable in iOS having such a large market share and therefore Safari having such a large market share, um, that kind of limits the amount of the amount of work you'd want to put in because you're not necessarily going to get them uh, as much um, bang for your buck. And Where have you found the limitations in Safari versus Chrome on mobile? I think the biggest one is the notifications. Um, it's also, it gives you, an, uh, when you, so when you install the Progressive Web app, you get, you don't have the Safari Chrome. Um, and I think you also don't get the same like JavaScript rendering engine. I'm not 100% sure about that. So I think there's a little bit of a speed difference there, but it isn't uh, terribly noticeable. But I think what you, what you find is that um, you have to recreate all the, the Chrome that you would expect in a native application. So like swiping between pages, um, you now have to be responsible for writing that in JavaScript, figuring those out. So I've done a little bit of work on sort of the, that back and forth swiping on a uh, web app. And um, like that, you know, they, I don't know how many hours of engineering time they put into making sure that making that where you swipe between pages feel so smooth and, uh, and have it work so well. And you don't get that same um, feel on a web app. So it, at least on the iOS side, is it, even though you don't have the web Chrome and it kind of, you could make it look a little bit like a, a native application, you don't have the same, the same uh, interface feel, if you will, like the, the swipes don't exactly look the same and they don't exactly work the same. Yeah, basically. Got it. So mainly the difference between Chrome and Safari is the notifications that iOS uh, and Apple doesn't want to support because they want to push you through their direction. That's what I would assume. I mean, they would probably say there's privacy reasons or, you know, they, I'm sure they could come up with a hundred different excuses, but yeah, that, that's, I think that's the biggest thing that would stop you from going full on native and doing a lot more work. Uh, and then on Android, they, because they let you do notifications, it's much more of a first party or a, like a first class citizen where they give you the full application shell and you treat it, your web app is treated much more like a native application. So I, I you know, I think it, if there was more, it's um, it's, you know, someone's got to go first. And so if, if more progressive web apps, progressive web apps became more popular then I think Apple would feel more pressure to, to let into those features or, or to put more time into it. But um, so that's, you know, I think that's, that's the biggest difference is Google sees it as part of their strategic platform and Apple doesn't quite see it as part of their strategic platform. I want to dive into the implementation here a bit. You said that there was a plugin or uh, a rails engine that you used to set this up. And I'm assuming that it, you know, it, it helps you get together your manifest JSON and your service worker stuff. What, what was that called and what exactly does it give you? It really, it gave you the, what did it give you? It gave you the service worker and it gave you the um, app manifest. I think those are the two biggest things that were necessary. I didn't use the, the engine because it didn't really, I just wanted to kind of do it all 
all in one spot. You use it as reference. Yeah. That's what you're saying? Okay. Yeah, and I think I wrote somewhere down where I... Well, and the boilerplate seems so small anyways, worth yeah. using an engine for that. Yeah. So, so what do you put into the manifest.json? So the spec asks for a couple things, and there's some mandatory things. And um, a great tool to test it is uh, Google has a their lighthouse um, testing framework. Will, if you tell it, it'll, I guess it'll figure out it's a PWA, and it will do all the testing for you to make sure you fit, uh, fit, uh, fit the spec. But um, a couple things, you need a name for it. Um, and they ask for a short name or a, and a long name. So the short name would be the title you'd see under the icon on the, on the home screen. And then the, the long name is kind of what you I'd actually describe it. You need to give it some icons that would go into the, the home screen. So there's like a 512 pixel by 512 pixel one and a 192 pixel square icon. You need to give it a URL to where, tell it where to start. And so for this is why the ERB part of putting this into Rails is so useful because you can use the asset pipeline to put in your icons and asset, um, your image icons. And then any URLs, those are just paths that you can take from your routes. So I think usually you, you have it as the root path, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You could um, have it all sorts of um, subpaths and the PWA um, spec allows you to do that. Uh, and then you need to give it a scope. So like how, what is the, I guess the, the URL that's the root URL for this. So usually that's the, the root directory, um, the root path. It's, you know, the server name and the slash. But again, you could have that as a specific sub section of your website. So like the blog, if you wanted to make that just the PWA, you could do slash blog and that would be a root path. And then some colors that, again, it uses to help kind of hint at what this will look like as it's load as it's load um giving that sort of fake native screen and it's loading the web page so like a background color and a theme color yeah that's not a, a ton of stuff either to put in i'm i'm actually digging through your app right now as you were talking about the manifest and looking at the manifest and i mean you're not wrong it's it looks fairly simple to put together with what you have available to you in a rails app yeah it definitely does and that's i think that's why it's such a powerful convention and, and you can kind of drop it into your app and you get a lot for free in terms of uh, that sort of more local performance on the device. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned was that you weren't able to make this work or you, you had trouble at least making it work with either the asset pipeline or with Webpacker, I think. Mm-hmm. Can you talk through that? I mean, I see your serviceworker.js.erb here. So you're using, you know, ERB to render this JS file. So why didn't it work through the those other pipelines? So that's not a technical limitation, like that you couldn't put an ERB file into either of those locations. It's um, and there's actually there's like a an issue on Rails or something that I think even DHH comments on it. The problem comes gets back to the convention is that the wherever the manifest.json file is served from, that limits everything has to be underneath that. So if you're and I think the default path for a asset on let me just look at the source on this the default path for an asset in a rails app is something like slash assets so if you had slash assets and then the manifest.json or slash packs slash js slash service worker um that limits what uh the scope 
of, um, of, of what the service worker can access. So the service worker can only access any paths, I guess, if you want to think below where it is. So if the URL that the service worker comes on is sort of like my pwa.com slash packs slash JS slash service worker.js. The service worker is only allowed by, by the browser is only allowed to see things in that um, slash packs slash JS path. Anything else it's not allowed to see. And so that, that's the real constraint with putting it into the asset pipeline or Webpacker is it's going to put your service worker in the wrong spot and then um, it won't be able to kind of do everything it needs to do to give you the functionality. So when I when I put it in as a controller, basically a view off of a controller, then I can use the my routes file in the Rails app to kind of give it whatever scope it needs to be. And usually that I would it's kind of the, I think the default would be your, the root scope of the app. But that's that's the real problem. It's not like a technical problem that they can't handle ERB. It's more just the spec states uh, where it should go, and you have to work within those those parameters. So I guess one follow one quick follow up on that is uh, does it care about redirects or anything like that? So for example, if I were to in my routes file, I mean, what you were talking about just like gave me an idea. I was just like, I wonder if I could basically get my routes file to sort of like fake a top level path and then have it, you know, return an asset file. Does it care about being redirected? Because if it doesn't, I wonder if there might be a solution. But I think that was part of the discussion. I'm trying to, I haven't looked at it in like a year, so I'm trying to remember. But I think, yeah, I think part of the problem is, and this is all based, this is the browser security model. And I think, I think it's part of the security model, the service worker, that it has to come from a, a website over HTTPS so that it, no one tampers with it. And then it has to be, um, I don't believe you can do the redirects and things like that. And, and that's because, because it's, it has, it runs as such a privileged uh, thread where it, has all the access to all the data on the website, so it's an you know that's a great spot to man in the middle attack a website if you could get a hold of the service worker. So I I think for that reason the redirects don't work either, but um, maybe some I have to double check that. So then another follow up here is you wrote I mean you wrote this on install this on activate on fetch you you wrote like a number of functions in the JS ERB. Did you attempt and find that you could? just use this JS ERB to kind of bootstrap stuff that you wrote in your pipeline? Or Yes. So that's that's one of the things about the PWA is that you can basically prefetch any of those files. And the technical, I think, am I understanding the technical implementation of it is the service worker now is a proxy between your web, your front end on the, the HTML on the page and the back end. So the service worker is taking all those requests sending it to the server, and then getting something back. And so if you look at this, the, uh, the fetch, that's where you can, that's where you're, you're actually doing the caching is you're just, the default is you just kind of send it back to the, to the web server, the result back, and then you cache it on the front end. And then if the, the request goes down or it's not available, then you could serve it back to the, the client. So th- those functions are kind of the bare minimum you need for a service worker. And then, so yeah, the install, you can just go ahead and cache. I just have it cache the, the JavaScript and the CSS file because those are two files you're always going to need um, and then an offline file. But you could do a whole lot more. And I think that's that's where you could, if you could put a lot of more flexibility, like if you were a restaurant and you wanted to 
just make your, your website a PWA. You could have it cache all the files, perhaps as like a menu page, um, or many different menu pages, the add the location page, you know. Um, you could cache all those and then when someone is needs to access your your website and maybe they're in bad cell coverage or something like that, um, or a slow data connection, they can just uh, that would all be available to them without having to go out to uh, the net, to go back to the server and get it. So, yeah, the, the install is really powerful where you can put a lot of things in. I think like the I would assume like the, the Gmail website, and I know Microsoft has a bunch of stuff on this. They do a lot more caching because they've got a bigger JavaScript front end. So if you had a big JavaScript front end, you would, you would cache all those files and then they become available offline. And uh, and then the onfetch is the one that's doing all the proxying, and that's where that's where the security model is um, so important because you can literally change, you could redirect everything to a, a malicious website, or so there's there's a lot of trust that needs to be with that service worker object. Yeah, I think I think my particular question here was kind of around as I made my worker more complicated, could I take advantage of writing some of that code in the pipeline and loading it? It doesn't look like you experimented here, so I was just kind of asking a little bit, potentially a question that you don't know the answer to. But oh, I see what you mean. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think the service worker model itself. I think you could. I think those can be kind of from wherever. So if you put the logic in different service workers, I think that it's the progressive web app service worker that has the some of those security limitations. I don't know. That'd be. I'd be yeah. I'd, that would be an area of research to look into. Well, thanks for working with me on that. <laughs> no problem. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby on Rails? Maybe you were sad that you missed out on some of the interactions you could have gotten at RailsConf, but you're still not sure you want to travel because of COVID-19? Well, I'm putting on a Rails Remote Conf. We're doing it in August, and it's going to feature a lot of your favorite people from the Ruby Rogues panel and other friends and neighbors across the community. So if you want to join in the fun, come watch some of the RailsConf video talks with us during a live watch party online, and then come see all of the live talks the next three days, then come check us out at railsremoteconf.com. That's railsremoteconf.com. So one thing that I'm curious about is that you mentioned you were using stimulus and you're pulling mm-hmm. stimulus in for some of the JavaScript stuff that you're doing. So do you, like if somebody interacts with your page, obviously that's going to be happening on the main thread. So then do you just delegate some of the callouts and things like that off to the service worker and then, you know, cache any data that comes back and things like that? Yes, you could do that. Um, this, the, the Hacker News Progressive Web App thing that I built doesn't really do any of that. Um, the stimulus is mostly for managing, in this case, managing the action cable connections. Um, but I... I imagine if you were going to do anything with uh, that was going over the network, that would go through the service worker, and you could proxy that all. Um, yeah, you said that you're using stimulus to manage the action cable connections, and so yeah, I, I just assume that you you might be able to set up a web socket on the service worker and then send communications down the pipe that way. I'm not sure about that actually. I I think the web socket might be its own different thing, but I didn't occur to me to check it out at the time, so I'm. Another thing to look into. Right. So so how exactly were you using the service worker then? Was it you would make your requests over action over the WebSocket over action cable and then you would just hand off whatever you needed cached off to your uh, service worker? 
No, the service worker for this particular website is really just handling any of the HTTP calls. So when you load, um, it's really, it's kind of a simplified thing. It was just giving you the off, in this case, it was just giving you an offline mode. Um, I didn't get into um, some of the more advanced things, but if, if you like turn your internet connection off, which you wouldn't want to do right now since we're recording, but you turn the internet connection off and you go back to the page, it'll give you all the, the styling, the CSS, and it'll just say you're offline. So I didn't, I, yeah. One thing I'm curious about, Chuck, because you mentioned some of the other conversations you had around this from the JavaScript camp side of the fence is how does this conversation compare with the way the heavily entrenched JavaScript camp would look at a progressive web app? What critiques would they lobby against this and, or would they find it unique and jump on board with it potentially if they were of that persuasion? Yeah, so the, for the most part, the conversations we've had on other shows, essentially what we wind up, so we'll, we'll start out talking about PWAs and what they are. And then from there, what, what happens is you start talking about how to get Angular or React or Vue or what have you to play nicely with the, my brain just blanked out. With the, the of a, with, uh, Well, specifically, it's the, um, the side process, whatever you call uh, that, but I can't worker, remember. Right? Yeah, the service worker. And so the rest of it is hand-wringing over the service workers. You know, a lot of the rest of it, you know, you talk about the manifest.json for a few minutes, it's pretty straightforward. You talk a little bit about like notifications and having your icons right and things like that. And that's all pretty well, you know, figured out. And you can go stack overflow it and figure it out without too awful much trouble. And most of the time, they're not really talking about the the conventions or the worries with the back end, right? They just assume that you're going to be able to get the notification into the service worker and it's going to pop it up or, you know whatever other data you're going to push through the service worker is just going to be taken care of with regards to the back end. So really what it is is just getting your uh, Angular Reactor view to interface nicely with the service worker. And surprisingly, none of those frameworks have an exceptionally strong story for service workers. So the, think, there's, there's a little bit of angst when you get down to it on how that works. Yeah, I think the service worker isn't the most interesting thing. I think it's more... It's just kind of a nice, or I think that a lot more work needs to be done in the service work. I think like, um, and that's why it's so cool that this just kind of works with Rails um, because then you don't have to rewrite your whole front end or, or do any of that stuff. I think the challenge then becomes what can you do with the service worker? And I think that gets into like, if you just say when you study computer science or something, they talk about multi-threaded programming. There are some pro applications that like really need a multi-threaded um, setup. And then there are other ones that it's probably fine that it's a single thread and it's not doing a lot. And I think that's, you've got a lot of flexibility with this service worker setup. And I think um, more kind of experimentation needs to be seen, like what can you actually do with this rather than just caching files and um, handling the notifications and, and things like that. And I think that's kind of where the other frameworks have the same problem is they're, they're trying to figure out what they can do with the service worker, but they're just, I don't know, there hasn't been a, a leader, I would say, in, in pushing that forward. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty right to me. It, it It's not super well understood what it'll do among most developers. And so, yeah, 
it'd be really interesting to see a lot better definition around, all right, these are the things we envision you doing with the service workers. Here are all the things that we wish that we could do with the service workers. We're going to push that forward and then just get a really neat set of, of conventions around it and things like that that make it easier to reason about like how you would actually use it. Because that's the other thing is is that I haven't seen a lot of great examples on, hey, here's how you actually use the service worker. Yeah, other than the basics of like it needs to get installed, activated, and then you fetch data with it. Other than, yeah. Yep, pretty much. So. I think like many generic th- concepts, right? Uh, I think like threads or something like that. When you introduce some of these super vague things, they take forever to get adopted because like you point out, People have no idea what to do with these things. And I don't think that's uncommon at all. I think I think we're just watching people play with them and be like, wow, this is really powerful. And then just set it aside because they can't think of a use case for it. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. Yep. Trying to find a page. I, I know Microsoft is doing a lot because they're, they're building this into Edge. And I guess now that Edge is running on Chromium, it's even easier for them. But they're, they're trying to do something. So they had some, I, when I was doing my research, they had a lot of cool videos about it but again it was just kind of simple like well you can store things offline and if you've got a full javascript front end then it gets all cash and that works online but uh, it kind of goes back to what is your application doing and i would say most applications need an internet connection so the offline capabilities aren't that um you're not getting a whole lot with that other than you, you could look up something which is i think that's why you're going to have to think out you might have to think outside the box of where could you take a web application that you could actually use this offline capability or this background processing to do something? So I, I think that's that probably is part of the challenge is you really have to think of a whole new class of problems that you could solve with a web application. And since it's not 100% of a, of a native application, you may be loath to spend the time and, and look into that. So it's probably worth, worth more time and effort will be fruitful. Yeah, there's also a lot of competing things, I think, for Mindshare. So for example, one of the particular problems that maybe it solves is handling a certain subset of applications that you want to run natively or almost natively, right, on a on a device. But but there's so many things fitting in that space right now that it's, you know, there's an amount of squeeze out going on there. I, I don't really know that most applications even consider background processing, at least you know, from the JavaScript angle, because they're just like, well, everything's fast anyway, right? It's most things are fast enough that if you need background processing, right, you're offloading that to a backend server. And then and then as you pointed out, there's so many applications that somebody's like, hey, I'd love for it to have offline functionality. And then you're just like, well, actually, I really need online functionality for just about every single use case except for, you know, maybe my boss who's on a plane or something. And so then yeah. you kind of give up, right? There's just, there's a lot of squeeze out in like all of those areas. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. That's um, a lot of competition. And, you know, because you've got a new JavaScript, lots of new JavaScript frameworks or they're reinventing themselves all the time, that kind of hurts in terms of what you could kind of sit down and think through a problem because now you got a, a new library or something you have to come to become familiar with and, um, so that definitely hurts the implementation and the the um, playing around with, with what you could do with these. What I did like about this application that you put together is just showing how you can do all of this with the Rails stack 
and whether you want to pick and choose which pieces, whether you like stimulus or you don't like web sockets, you could inter- interchange those for something else. But showing the fact that you can do all of this straight up in a rail stack without having a bunch of client-side processing, which is the tactic that React or Angular would take, it's a very uh, different approach to it, but especially rolled up with all of your Russian doll caching, it's really a pretty cool concept. But again, I agree with John in that there's so much mindshare and fighting over that. And I, I, I love it, though. Thank you. That was one of the goals was what you could do with, with kind of the, I guess, the omakase rails uh, setup. Which I think leads into exactly where what I wanted to say to you, too, which is like, I definitely don't want to come off saying, or I don't definitely don't want to give off the impression that I think this is useless. I think, I mean, for me, the thing that I saw in this was a, you said, okay, I'm just going to use all of this sort of, you know, recommended rail stuff and, and build a thing. And as I have been digging through your code base in preparation for, and during the show today, I'm just like, look at how nice and pretty and like easily everything works together. This is everything that I love about Rails. And you're like, look, it applies to another thing. And I think that speaks to the flexibility of Rails, which is why I still happen to like Rails and and all those pieces there. So I was pretty happy to see a really nice, easy example of, of just, you know, Hey, here's action cable, you know, stimulus built on top of that and working very nicely with that, right? And you're you're delivering like all of these pieces together. And and then at the end, you're like, hey, look, I got hundreds, you know, I this thing is super fast, right? So immediately bucking the whole well, Rails is slow thing that is unfortunately a, a commonly spoken criticism. Well, and that's where it, this seems to have an advantage. If if you have to pull down React, I mean, there's ways to use Preact and other things, but you've still got a decent size download of pulling all that logic down to the client side and working with all that. Obviously, you don't have to fight that if you have a native application because you download it once and then there's occasional updates that install themselves while you're sleeping, but it's a different beast with the progressive web app. And between this and Angular, it seems like there's lots less of the initial download and caching that you have to do. Yes, and, and even a, a native app, you know, most of the logic and stuff is downloaded offline. But if it's going to be going to an online web service, you're still stuck waiting for the network connection to get set up for it to download the initial, you know, JSON from the API to to render all that into a view. And um, so you're not you're not it's not that much faster. If it already has to go out to the web, you know, you're, I think that's the, the other thing that's missing is yes, native apps have so much performance and that they can, you know, they've got a GPU and they can push pixels as fast as possible, but they're still, they still have, they're bound by the same physical constraints of a network connection over a, a mediocre uh, 4G or LTE cell connection. Absolutely. I do, I do really, I mean, okay, so I definitely, have a soapbox moment here, but like, I do feel like this is really demonstrative of how closely to uh, how closely stimulus fits to the way that we sort of, at least in the Rails community, but I think it's starting to become more, I'm starting to see it in other places too, just how we view what JavaScript's supposed to do versus what other things are supposed to do. You're just using stimulus, right? 
to handle, okay, I got data from the back end, let me put it in the right place on the page, and then I'm done. And, and that's, it's super lightweight. You don't have to load an entire framework into memory. All, all you're doing is reacting to basically a push on that web socket. And that's it. Like, it, I don't know. I'm just like super, this happens to be super flexible. You have pieces that work together very smoothly. They, they're experts in their own area. And your whole app is fast because of that. I, I don't think I'm disagreeing with either you or Matt in this moment. I just, I, those are the aspects that I think make it thus. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm blushing, you can't see. But yeah, I mean, that was that was the goal is what could you do with just kind of the, the default stimulus? And like if there's a, one of the things that I was working on to get the, the app-like functionality was trying to do the swiping stuff. And even that really works well as a stimulus controller because it's not doing any network calls, but you're just listening for events that are happening uh, from your, the touch uh, touches on the, the view and then they're getting sent to the controller. And since the controller has data local to it, like what's its current state, and then you're doing a little bit of math and you're, you can then use the styling on the page to kind of shift things around. Um, so even that works really well just as a stimulus controller. It doesn't necessarily have to be anything that's network related, but it's giving you kind of that, just a touch of that interactivity that someone would expect on a web page. Uh, did you ever submit this to that HNPWA site? I never found it on there. I don't know. No, I was I was working on it, and then um, I wasn't quite polished enough that I would have wanted to submit it. And then life got really busy last spring and summer and fall, and it's just kind of quieting down now as everything else is uh, burning down around us. But so no, I never got around actually to submitting it. And since you asked, I, I think that's I should do that. All right. Well, I'm going to push us toward picks unless there's something else to cover on this. No, that sounds good. I guess I guess one thing just occurred to me, and this happens to me all the time. I'm like, let's go to Pix. Oh yeah, the thing. I'm assuming the testing story on this stuff is pretty straightforward. I didn't really get into that. I mean, I think it's yeah, I think it's just the default Rails testing would give you most of the things, especially the integration testing where you're running it in a browser. I, I think if you want to, one of the things I found when I was doing iPhone and Android apps is it really helps to have just a, a QA person who didn't write the app going going through and pushing all the buttons and putting in the wrong input and, and seeing what breaks. So I think for something like this, like that's that's so necessary if you're gonna actually try to ship this as a real application to real customers. But I, I think it also fits with the regular default Rails integration testing and, and things like that. Awesome. All it's right. Well, let's go passing. Zero out of zero. <laughs> all the tests I wrote pass. That's right. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonvue.com. All right, well, I'm going to have uh, John Epperson start us off with picks. Okay, so I have one and a half picks today. So my first pick for today is I found this really sweet gem that I recently used in a project. It's called phrasing. So I, I, I don't, I, I want to say it was like a couple years ago, I kind of bought into, I started buying into the train of basically putting every single line in my application into uh, I18N or whatever. And I've been very happy with finally getting on board with that. I have no justification for why I didn't sooner. 
But the awesome thing about phrasing is that I saw this in a Ruby Weekly, which, you know, sure, I can pick that too, I guess, because Ruby Weekly is awesome. In our Ruby Weekly a long time ago, I added it. I was like, oh, this is cool. I'll use this later. And I came back to it. I've just been very happy. Basically, what it does is it allows you to sort of inline edit on a web page. And it doesn't edit your i18n file, but basically the way that phrasing works is it sort of like uh, caches of sort all your i18n stuff in the database. So when somebody edits on your homepage or whatever, it changes some copy or something, it's now stored in the database or whatever. So it's pretty cool. The only issue, the only thing that I would not like about it is if you then want to go back in your i18n file and edit it there, then you know, now it's in the database already. So that's a little wonky. But other than that, I've been super happy with it for like, I've done a couple of apps now with this that are more or less like small. And I was working with some other people who, you know, I was the developer and they weren't developing and I just wanted them to change things all the time. This was fantastic for doing that. So phrasing is a pretty sweet gem for that. And then I definitely want to give a my half my half a pick for today is because I'm pretty sure that everybody like knows about it, but I've sort of like resurrected it for myself or whatever. So simple form, it's been around for freaking ever, but and I used to even hate on it for a long time because I felt like it was taking control away from me when I was building forms. But I started using it a couple apps recently, and I I decided that I was an idiot, and it's awesome. So thanks for sticking around despite all my hatred. That's, awesome. that's my picks. All right, Matt, what are your picks? I only have one pick, and it's kind of philosophical and also kind of extracurricular from work, but I recently got into the Jeep game and tearing apart a Jeep 4.0 motor and considering taking the head in for machine shops. So my pick is machine shops and discovering all the wonderfulness that they can uh, fix. And I've got a bit of machining ability in my shop, but not quite the ability that they can. But aside from that, on the philosophy side, it's pretty interesting that the similarities between refactoring a application and tearing apart and potentially doing engine swaps on on vehicles. So I've been having fun with that because I can't spend all my time doing digital stuff. I need to get out into the analog world every once in a while. That's my pick for the summer. Awesome. Yeah, I, I like working on cars too. I, I haven't done a ton of that lately, but I do need to get my truck uh, fixed so that it'll pass the emissions test here in Utah County. So um, I'm just going to shout out about Rock Auto, rockauto.com. I find that they are terrific for getting the tools that I need, and I really, really love their stuff. So I'm going to pick them. I'm going to shout out an anti pick. We do these periodically. It's like, do not do this. I have had some major issues getting a line added to my plan on Total Wireless which is my cell carrier. Since I've paid for the next month and I don't particularly want to fight them for the refund, I am going to continue with them until the middle of June and then I'm switching carriers. That said, if you use somebody else, I I don't really like the big three carriers. I think they charge too much and I get more or less the same coverage from uh, some of the less expensive carriers. That's why I was on Total Wireless. I was on them for a long time. Anyway, if you have recommendations, I, I would appreciate those. And then I've been on a kick lately learning sales funnels and marketing and things like that. And I have picked up pretty much everything by Russell Brunson. And so I'm going to shout out about all of his stuff. 
I'm currently right at the beginning of the One Funnel Away Challenge, which is a 30-day challenge and they walk you through building a sales funnel. I figure this is probably a good thing for the online conferences that I'm putting together. So anyway, One Funnel Away, I'll put a link to that. I have an affiliate link for it, but I'm really, really, really digging it. And then he's got three books out. One is Expert Secrets, which is more along the lines of you're an expert in a thing, so you ought to make money, you know, showing other people how to do the thing or, you know, doing the thing yourself. And then there's dot com secrets and traffic secrets, which are much more around the marketing end of things as far as driving traffic to your website, building a sales funnel and stuff like that. So I'll put all those links in the the chat as well. So they'll wind up in the show notes. And then of course our guest, John, what are your picks? One pick that I was thought of is I really liked Eileen Yushatel's RailsConf 2020.2 Couch Edition talk. It's a really interesting about how you would put basically put it in a multi, multiple database support for Rails. Like that's interesting in and of itself. But I think it's also a really cool example of how you would um, handle a difficult problem like that without getting too kind of architecture astronaut where you try to design everything perfectly. And she, she really goes over, um, she talks about how they, uh, they try to design the public API first and then figure out all the complexity underneath that. And I think that's such a great way to design anything that's, um, you know, solving the problem without having, and then trying to solve the, a person's regular problem and then figuring out the hard stuff behind the scenes. And I think that's what makes Rails so cool as, as she talks about, like just they figure out a lot of the, the tough stuff, like the database thing, the connections and things like that. And so I think that's a, if you haven't seen that talk, I strongly recommend that. Awesome. And John, if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you or your stuff? Let's see, I've got a blog, the onrails.blog. Um, I do a little bit of blogging. I'm trying to get back into that. I have a Twitter, but I don't really tweet a lot. And I kind of turned off by a lot of the toxicity on social media. But that's J-P-B-E-A-T-T-Y. And uh, those are probably the two best spots to find me and I'll occasionally tweet things from there. All right. Good deal. Well, thank you for coming, John. This was great. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this up. And until next time, Max out. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.